I think that networking has been a hard word for women. I think for a very long time, it suggests one more thing to do, which is hard for women to imagine, or it's identified with going to an event and passing out business cards. Networking is about building relationships. Hey there, and welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner. I'm a serial entrepreneur, investor, and business coach for ambitious women who are boldly taking their business to the next level. And I believe that building a successful business isn't about working 24-7 just to merely meet a revenue goal. What it does take is a unique blend of dedication to purpose, courageous action, and frequently sheer will to overcome the odds that lead to meaningful impact and experiencing a life well lived. In each episode, you'll get to know the women and men who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of success and failure that have made them incredible leaders and the magic they gift the world with. As you're listening, and I hope finding value, don't forget to share the Tribe of Leaders podcast with all of your other entrepreneurial friends and to follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am your host, Emmy Kirshner, and I am so excited to have this week's guest, Ellen Snee, on. She is a former nun, Catholic nun, who was a nun for 18 years, and she gained a number of essential and happily transferable skills such as how to discern a call or a deep desire, how to work collaboratively with other women, and how to be a savvy operator within male hierarchies. In her new book, Lead, How Women in Charge Claim Their Authority, she draws on that knowledge as well as the lessons and insights she's gained from her research at Harvard University on women's experience and roles of authority, which formed the foundation of her company's work with Fortune 500 companies such as Cisco, Goodyear, Marriott, Pfizer, and Schwab. Later, as the Global VP of Leadership Development at VMware, she launched its business initiative, VM Women, to attract, develop, advance, and retain talented women. Ellen, so blessed, lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I can hardly wait to dive into your book, Ellen. So, one, welcome. I am so excited for you to be here, and tell me everything. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. And where would you like to start? Yeah, let's dive in because, I mean, part of what drew me to you is you were a nun and then you went to Harvard and now you've, like, you're changing the world. You were really a trailblazer in, you know, creating a space for women to step up and be the leaders that they naturally are supposed to be in a world that is difficult, challenging, and we're really just breaking into those top levels of leadership. So let's get into the beginning of what made you decide to become a nun, because that's not the path that most women follow. That's right. Well, it really started when I was 12. I'm the oldest of five in an Irish Catholic family, and we had nuns and priests in our family and local priests who would come every Wednesday for hot dogs and carbs. 
And one night when he was leaving and we were getting a blessing from him, I stood up, I was 12, and I said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a priest. And everyone looked at me. And then Father Tom said, well, Ellen, you mean a nun? And I said, no, I mean a priest. And he said, well, girls can't be priests in the Catholic Church. And that moment was the beginning of my feminism and my career of working to change things on behalf of women. I went on to college and it kind of disappeared. But at the end of my college experience, I was very involved with a campus ministry group. It was the early 70s. There were a lot of anti-war protests. And I decided that if I couldn't be a priest, I'd be a nun. But it had to be a really active, intelligent group of women. And at that time, everyone was leaving the convent. Women weren't entering, as you mentioned. But long story short, I did meet an order that were the religious of the Sacred Heart. I like to think of us as the female Jesuits. A lot of people know the Jesuits. And I found in this group of women a sense of community, a sense of commitment, And they were women who ran universities and colleges, and I was interested in higher education. So I felt like I found my place where I could make a difference in the world for women in the context of a community of women dedicated to other people and to a life of prayer, which was always a part of my life. Which is amazing. What I'm really curious about is in that moment when you're 12 and you're standing up and you're saying that you're, you want to be a priest and you're being told that you can't, you weren't deterred. Like, it wasn't like you sat back down and you're like, oh, all right, well, you know, this is the path then. I'll go down the path and just be a nun. Like, it sounds like you have a rebellious side in you a little bit where, <laughs> and you're laughing, so I'm going to go with yes. Yes, yes. I wouldn't say rebellious because I... I think for the most part, I've been a good student, a good daughter, a good girl, as many of us have grown up to be. But once I feel called to something, once I have clarity on something, nothing stops me. Mm -hmm. So I became a nun. Then later on, I had another experience where I was in charge of recruitment and admission. And so I wanted to get trained to do interviews, to do them more effectively. And the company that trained people to do interviews had two tools. And one was for priests and one was for nuns. And I wanted the one for priests because that was the one to interview for leadership and authority. And the other one was much more toward a more meek, compliant profile. And they wouldn't let me. So I decided there was a woman, Carol Gilligan, who was studying, who was teaching women's developmental psychology at Harvard. So I thought, I'm going to go work with her and develop a whole new tool for women. 
And I did. I went to Harvard and I started working with her on women's psychology. In the course of that time, left the community and became very interested in the issues of authority. That really set the next chapter. So basically, when you were told again that you should take the more meek path, instead of following that, you just created something newly. Correct. Correct. And I I would do that several more times when I... (laughs) (laughs) Not so much to rebel, but because... I call myself the reluctant entrepreneur because when I see something that needs to be done, I'm going to figure out how to do it. And there's rarely a laid out path for that. So when I finished graduate school and I had done this work on women in authority, this was 1994. And it's hard to believe that back then there were no roles in diversity. There was nothing about advancing women, nothing, nothing. So I decided I'll become an entrepreneur and start my own business with like no business experience at that point. And I also decided it was going to be working only with women. Mm-hmm. And everyone said, you are crazy, not only for starting a company when you don't have that background, but you're really crazy to be only offering services for women. If you go to these big companies, they're going to want you to provide resources to everyone. And I said, no, I'm going to offer just to women. And so we launched my company, Fine Line. And we were very successful. I had a very serendipitous opportunity to teach in a women's leadership program that started that year. And the participants were all women from Fortune 500 companies. And so they would come and we would meet and they would invite me back into their company to do programs and coaching. And so it worked. Clearly. And I mean, it's a testament too of you were obviously making an impact with these women because they were inviting you back into the company. Like if you yes. had the trust and the connection and the results. Yes. Yes. It yes. Would have, yes. Yeah. I think part of that was I had developed a model for coaching women that was so grounded both in how to listen to women, which I got from the Gilligan work. Mm-hmm. Also, from my experience as a nun, where I had lived and worked in schools where everyone holding a role of authority was a woman. So I had seen lots of styles and approaches and personalities. And so all my assumptions were, of course, a woman can be a leader. And of course, she can hold a role of authority. So I think that came through to the women I was meeting and they were curious and wanted to, I was different. I was different in a way that mattered. Yeah. I want to talk about your experience as a nun, because I know a lot of people based on the movies or shows, (laughs) right? You think you're just walking around and praying all of the time. And that's not the case. Like you were super involved and, 
the women that you were interacting with, as you said, were taking on incredible roles that really impacted other people. Right. So I resisted for many, many years talking about my background as a nun because of my fear of people's stereotypes from the movies and TV. And my life was nothing like that. Nothing. Uh, That was an earlier stage in religious life or a way that other communities, you know, communities of nuns are like families. They're all different. In my experience, we lived in a house. We took turns cooking and doing the chores and we all had day jobs. You know, I taught for I worked for two years at a university and lived with the president and the professors, campus minister and me and a few other people. And another year I lived and worked in one of our high schools and the principal of the high school, her room was across the hall. Mm-hmm. So it was challenging to what was work and what was community. But I learned those those challenges and how to navigate them. And we all made a difference. You know, we we go to art exhibits. There were people who enjoyed sports. It was much more normal than most people think. That's awesome and wonderful. And it sounds like you had such an opportunity to contribute too. Absolutely. And we contributed individually. And right. we contributed collectively. And that's what I loved was that the sum of the parts was greater than the outcome was greater than the sum of the parts. Right, right. Which is phenomenal. And it says, I mean, it's a testament to not only you, but everybody that was contributing. Absolutely. I still say my order, because I'm still very close to and connected with our nuns and the community. But a point while I was studying, it no longer really fit. That way of life no longer fit me. Okay. And that was, was that the catalyst for you deciding to leave? To leave. To leave. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about your journey in starting your business with no business experience. <laughs> I presume there was little or no business plan. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had? So you presume right. And I know a large part of your audience are entrepreneurs. So I can really speak to, you know, what not to do as well as what to do. I think for me, it was about this mission. You know, I had this idea. And the first year, one of my... My first client was one of the women in this program, and she saw that I could help her, mm-hmm. and she saw that she could help me. So she was very much a mentor to me on the business side of getting started, even while I was able to be a support and advisor to her as a coach. And each year, there would be one or two more companies that. I would move into. Very quickly, there were other women in the Boston area who heard of what I was doing or I got to know, and they wanted to join me. Mm -hmm. So we grew exponentially 
And they were often people who were doing either teaching and then worked with me or had their own consulting. So it was that kind of arrangement. And very, I would say by the second year, I knew I needed some kind of assistance because fabulous at visioning and ideas <laughs> and not so good at the details. You but and I, I are, are aligned. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that about myself. And so I quickly found someone who would partner with me and handle all of the operational side. And that made all the difference. Yeah. If you had not done that, do you think it would have hindered your growth? There would not have been any growth. At every stage of my career, I have always found a way to be supported. Even in the launch of this book, I have a team of five people helping me with different dimensions of it so mm -hmm. that we can really make it happen. And I would say to any entrepreneur, know your strengths and know the things you're not good at or you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I probably could have learned how to do them, but I knew I, I would never get around to it because I didn't yeah. like it. Well, and that's what I hear consistently from entrepreneurs is, you know, they're generally speaking the visionary and in order for them to grow, in order for the business to grow, for them to be able to help the people they want to help, you have to let go of that DIY mentality and also plan your business for scale, which Absolutely. are two different things. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And our plan for scale was twofold, was to get into more companies and then once we were in a company to scale the offerings that we provided. Yeah. And that worked phenomenally until 9-11. Right. And after 9-11, there was no travel. Companies cut back on consultants. And so it really slowed down. And I had, by that point, I had a, a home and an office in California and in Boston because I was going back and forth so often. And that was when I decided to close down Boston and move to California. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And you've been in California ever since. I have. I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have. It's a beautiful place. I think I've shared it. Yeah. My um, reason for moving was, I used to joke and say, life is short and I want sun. <laughs> well, that is more than reasonable coming from somebody else who is a son right. So, yeah. Now, starting over those first two years was pretty brutal, but after a while, it all fell in place. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and then again, that's the, I think the consistent theme for you is, you know, really taking initiative and doing things differently and not being afraid to step out into your uncomfort zone and find the thing that works. So what was the catalyst for writing the book? Oh, oh that was, there were three pieces to the answer to that. First, about a decade ago, someone I knew said, you have had the most interesting life with all of these different chapters, you really need to write a memoir. Now, I majored in math in college because I didn't feel I knew how to read or write. 
So writing a book was not on my to-do list. But when she said, write the memoir, I started, you know, thinking about it. And one day I came up with the title and it was going to be from convent to corporate. And every woman I mentioned that to loved, loved, loved the title. So I thought, all right, I have a title. Now I have to write a book. So I began, I guess, about six years ago when I stopped working full time. I began writing it as a memoir. And I had 238 pages. And I went to a writer's conference to meet with publishers and agents and et cetera. And while I was there, I took one of the courses and the couple that were teaching the course said, what you're talking about is not a memoir. It really should be a leadership book. And I was like, no, 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 no. I have 238 pages here. I am not I'm all done. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we went back and forth on that for three days. And finally, I woke up one morning at 3 a.m. and I knew they were right. So I came back and started over and did it as a leadership book. And I'm very, very, very happy that I made the change. Were you able to use some of the stories and experiences from the original book in in LEAD? Well, you can't really slide it over because it's a different genre. But yes, I was able to draw on some of the stories that I had talked about in the memoir. Not many, but some. Okay. So how can we claim our authority? Go right to the heart of it. Yes. Um, (laughs) So... For women, my premise is that women are, have been, and will be fabulous leaders. Mm -hmm. But when they're in a position of formal authority, things get a little more challenging. And by formal authority, I mean where you are given a role where you can hire, fire, promote, give feedback, Mm -hmm. sign checks, all of those things. And for women who are so geared to relationships, very often when they are in a role of authority over other people, it creates dilemmas. How do I balance the responsibility with the relationships? And so that was really the starting point for the book because I had found that in my research I had experienced that in my own life and had seen that with other women. Yeah. So when I'm coaching a woman who is in a role of authority, I'm always listening for that. I'm listening for how is she relating to her authority herself? You know, what are the voices and the tapes in her head? Does she use a lot of shoulds and coulds or woulds? Does she talk about having some of the challenges in executing on her authority, the discomfort of carrying that out. Mm -hmm. And then I try to elicit from her what's really going on. And what I've found is twofold. One is that we as women have lots of tapes, the imposter syndrome, the fear of failure, concern for others, self-criticism. But the other one is women often don't know what they want. Yes. 
And in order to hold authority well, I would argue you need to know the mission and purpose of your business, but you also need to know what you yourself want. Mm -hmm. And that's a missing piece for a lot of women. I do a lot of clarity work with my clients. And I'm going to say overall, not everybody that I've done that work with, but overall, the general consensus is coming in is that they know they want this thing that's out there, but they don't really know what it is. Right. And they don't know how to get there, who they are, who they want to be, and what that looks like. Like they just haven't thought about it. And for me, it's really cool. And I presume for them too, to have some of those pieces put in place in our work together. And even in their personal lives, you know, Mm -hmm. having this like, oh, I can have this and still be in a great relationship and have an amazing business and have, you know, a place where I'm well-respected and, and have authority. And I think women sometimes don't realize that opportunities right there, like they've been playing small, almost they're afraid to ask for the bigger piece of the pie. Right. I think they play small, but I also think they're so focused on the needs of other people Mm -hmm. that they haven't given themselves the time. Yeah. Or they're not in touch with their own inner desires. I remember when I first started working in corporations, if I sometimes interviewed the men on the team of a woman, and they always knew what they wanted. It was usually their boss's job, but they always knew. And so that was my first clue. And then the second thing was that as a nun, we were always asking, what is the will of God? You you pray for the will of God. And that whole process that we call discernment, trying to understand and reflect and weigh options, I have found is totally transferable to the world of work and business and women to really help them discern their own inner desire, Mm -hmm. not necessarily in a religious framework, just as as you were saying, a clarity framework. And that once they begin to see what they want, things change. Things change. They can go for it. Yeah. It's a lot of giving themselves permission Mm -hmm. to dream and to open up possibility. That's right. That's right. And then to articulate that with the key people in their world, you know, Mm -hmm. with a partner, with a family, with a friend and at work. One of the things at work is to really be clear with your boss and senior executives what your career aspirations are, because they can't help you if they don't know. And women often wait till they don't get a promotion to say, oh, but I would have liked that, but no one knew. And the woman is too focused on high performance and not looking at what it takes to be promoted. Right, right. And do you feel like women network enough? And particularly from a kind of a 360 degree, I won't say leadership, but so they're networking up laterally and then beneath them too. So I often over the years have used an image that women 
have their blinders on and are looking down at the people they're responsible for. And they have to lift their head and look out laterally to their peers and across their organizations, and especially up at the execs so that they know who they are. I think that networking has been a hard word for women. I think for a very long time, it suggests one more thing to do, which is hard for women to imagine, or it's identified with going to an event and passing out business cards. Networking is about building relationships, and it's critical. And I actually think that social media and the pandemic have really enabled women to figure out alternative ways to network. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't mean going somewhere. It can mean connecting online. The other thing that I've found really helps women to do that thing we call networking mm-hmm. is to think about it in terms of generosity. What are they going to offer someone? Right. Now that's playing off of, you know, our desire to care for and but it's turning that into a strength and saying I feel more comfortable reaching out to someone if I have something to offer. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, and I think it's a strength on which we can build. I think it's a great way to start building that relationship because people are pulled in a gajillion directions mm-hmm. and to be able to offer something of value. And in even like I teach my people the simple question of how can I support you right now? And particularly before you ask of anything, just builds that connection in a way that creates the trust and an opportunity to help somebody. And when you're helping somebody, they're more likely to reciprocate without you even asking. Absolutely. And my experience is if you help a woman, she is desperate to help you multiple times back. You know, <laughs> It just keeps coming round and round. Yeah. Someone I know, Dory Clark, who is a communications expert, likes to say that she believes in giving three times before she asks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's an interesting rule of thumb. But I've found that even without counting, that if we're if we can build the generosity muscle and really find ways to offer and give to people over time when you need something, people are there. Right. And it's amazing to have that network growing and building because at least I've found that then I have almost like this board of directors who are guiding me and somebody's always got my back. Absolutely. I used to do an exercise with clients about who is your board of directors and how to work that. And this week with a lot of activities around the book, I had a call last night with women who said they'd like to help me launch the book. And I had 20 women on the Zoom call. And I felt like an old program that used to say, this is your life, Ellen Snee. (laughs) (laughs) They were from every walk of my life. You know, I was like, well, you know, I don't want to ask too much. I don't want to ask too much. And they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we're here because we want to help. And it was a good reminder. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm very curious on your take of women working with each other and collaborating with each other. Because I've had a couple of people to me say recently, both men and women, that different people in their teams, because it was they're mostly women, it's like, oh, it's a hen house, or there's always too much gossip, or it was all kind of negative. And that has not ever been my experience. Like my experience has been one where you know the people in my circle are going to bat for me and I go to bat for them. But I don't think that's the case everywhere. Otherwise, that henhouse um, type of comment would be dispelled by now. So, yeah, how can we collaborate and work really well together and be supportive? That was really the driving question in my doctoral research. I was really intrigued by what happens when women are particularly in authority over each other. Mm. And I've watched it carefully for decades now in companies. I would say a few things. The first is that we as women often have unspoken or unarticulated expectations of other women, particularly those in authority. Mm -hmm. So in my book, I have an example of a woman saying, you know, she could go into the men and say, you know, bring my proposal forward. But with the women, she didn't feel she could do that. That, And she says something like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm afraid that I don't know. I just don't feel I can do that. Mm-hmm. I believe that we very often are hampered in our communication with women across the role of authority. We either expect a boss to be a friend or we expect her to do things for us because we're women, lots of things, and they don't get discussed. So the first thing is to pay attention to unspoken expectations. The second is, I think women have a different mode of communication when they're together than men. A million examples of of how that plays out. And when women are getting together and are seen to be gossiping or a hen house or or chatting or the other thing if there are three senior women having lunch in a company's cafeteria the guys will walk by and say oh there's an overthrow being planned you know that that becomes dangerous to men that right so there are a lot of assumptions put on women when they're together And I think that is a systemic issue. Right. I think that companies and organizations that have traditionally been male-driven, male-run, have all of these attitudes about women being together. And so it's not an individual dynamic. It's not a relational dynamic. It's a systemic. And you see that when you're doing things like performance reviews. Mm-hmm. And when a team of leaders is judging a man and then judging a woman at the same level, the comments can be dramatically different. And if someone isn't there to say, what's going on here? And I also think that, how can I say this? I think there have been times that I have witnessed that men 
almost enjoy seeing women arguing with each other, kind of taking each other on. They kind of step back and, you know, it's kind of like, well, let's see how this plays out. And I think that's really destructive. I think that, and some of those dynamics on a leadership team are only addressed when there are three or more women. You know, when it's one, she represents all women and is responsible for everything related to women. If it's two, they're compared and pitted against each other. And it's only when you have three that their gender identity becomes less significant because they're different. Right. Where do you think the balance can be made? Because I agree with you. I I think we live in a very patriarchal culture right now. And I think we're seeing a shift into really acknowledging and valuing the more maternal feminine side. Where do you think the balance is so that we can have stronger businesses where really it's the yin and the yang are in a far more harmonious state because that's where the magic's going to happen for everybody. Whether it's making you know bigger profits, serving more people, having tighter teams that act more fluidly, like it goes all the way up and down the mm-hmm. you know, all aspects of business. So I'm going to push back on the question because yeah. when the word balance comes up, you know, it's often about work-life balance. Yeah. And I like okay. to say that balance is a verb. And it's about balancing. It's not about reaching a state. I think that what we are seeing now is the recognition and appreciation dimensions of human experience Mm -hmm. that have not been present or gained recognition and valuing in the past. And I think that's because there are more women who bring that dimension to the group or the workplace. But I, from the beginning of my career, really resisted doing gender comparisons. Now, I talk about women and sometimes how they're different. But I think it's important to focus on how we are learning more about what it is to be fully human. And we're seeing that played out as we increase the number of women in roles of leadership. And the data shows that that, you know, from top to bottom, business results really make things better. The second thing I would say, and it builds on the question about networking, Mm -hmm. I think that in this last five, maybe 10 years, women have found ways to connect. What is amazing to me, because it just wasn't there for so long. There are so many online groups to really support each other. There are the lean-in groups and spinoffs of that. So I think that not only are women bringing more to work and politics and the world and certainly the environment, but they are have figured out how to do it together, to learn and support each other in a way that just was not true a decade ago. And each woman had to figure out how to navigate a patriarchal system on her own. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. And thank you for clarifying on the balance, because I 
I innately look at it as a flow yeah. where it's not in equilibrium. Sometimes it's more and sometimes it's less, but I forget that other people don't look at it that way. So right. yeah. That. yeah. And that's so true in anything that it's not ever equal. It's, it is a flow state that's movable. Correct. Right. Yeah. And, and I agree. I think, you know, I was actually, I was talking to my parents and my dad worked at Sun Microsystems back when that was still around and he retired and I think it was 2001 or 2003, but his boss was a woman and he was pretty high up, but she had to take on a lot of male attributes because she was the only one. Like that was the how to play the game where now it's definitely far more, even though our numbers are still smaller not where I would like to see them, but there's other people to walk with you at least. And that creates, I think, a sense of security as well. I think it, it creates security. It gives a sense of camaraderie and community. Yeah. And I think our appreciation of diversity has exploded. So mm-hmm. it isn't just around gender diversity, but all kinds of identity characteristics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Ellen, we have to wrap up. <laughs> I'm so bummed. If you don't mind, though, I would love, like, for any woman, two things, I guess two pieces of advice. For any woman who's listening to this and they're resonating with this, they resonate with your story, one, please get Ellen's book. But two, like, what's some action that they could take or words of wisdom that you can share to help them really claim their authority? I think it's a three-step process. First, be in relationship to yourself, know what you want, and manage the voices that are not helpful. Mm -hmm. The second is build relationships with other women, with other male allies, and especially, especially with people in power. And the third is understand that we are always part of systems that's truer today than ever and pay attention to the company, the organization, the community that you live in. You never know who's going to be able to help you. It may be another parent at a sports game of your children. It may be someone you meet on a bus somewhere. Everywhere is an opportunity. That is so true. That's so true. And then For the gentlemen who are listening, how can they support women to claim their authority, step into leadership? I think the most critical thing men can do for women is to pay attention in meetings. And when a woman says something valuable, second it with her name. So say, Emmy, that was a really important point. Or when someone else claims what she said point it out and say, hey, John, I think that's what Emmy said a few minutes ago. Paying attention to supporting women to name and claim their truth and authority in a meeting is the greatest gift you can give at this time. Perfect and beautiful. So thank you so much. And then where can everybody get, because I know it just came out, we're recording in September, but this will be out in well, it's October now when we're going live with this episode. So where can everybody get lead how women in charge claim their authority? 
So the book is available, Amazon and all independent bookstores. And I'd also encourage you to go to our website, which is simply www.ellensnee.com to follow the other opportunities. We're launching a pilot in October for four Wednesdays where we'll be covering different topics and having guests come to join us in conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. And the best place for people to connect with you, is it the website? The website has it all. That's the, just remember one thing, the website, my name, you can find information about my coaching services, about the book, and about speaking, because I'm very eager to continue this conversation with women at their companies, in their groups, in their book clubs, whatever. Awesome. Well, we're going to have the links for Ellen's website and to get the book in the show notes. So make sure that you do that. I've read, I'm going to say two thirds of the book and it's amazing. It's phenomenal. It's well written, super great stories that just resonate and connect with me. So I'm, I'm really excited. As I said to you before we started recording, I'm really excited to finish reading it tonight. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for being here. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It is a joy to be able to continue my mission to advance women for the sake of all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders. 